Yeah, my name is Ethan, and we do serve at the Hospital of Hope. Am I alive now? There we go. Okay, there's our family picture. You saw us up in front of you, so I don't necessarily have to dwell on this too long. Some of you were in Sunday school this morning, so some of this is uh, maybe a little bit of a refresher. But we want, first of all, just to thank you. You've been a church sponsor and partner with us in Togo for many years. Uh, we came here on, before we left for the first term. We've been in Togo now for two terms, so we spent a little over eight years out there. Uh, left in 2012 for language school. Uh, we went to France for a year and a half there, and then directly to Togo after that to help with the opening of the hospital in 2015. Finished up that term, came back, spent one year on the trail, uh, letting people know what God was doing in Togo, and um, being reminded ourselves. This is actually is a very, I've told a few people, a therapeutic process, because there's a lot of struggles on the mission field, and to come back and to be able to repeat to you what God is doing in a bigger picture helps me um, kind of maybe process some of the stuff that's not, it's a struggle sometimes, because you realize despite all the struggles, God is doing some amazing things. Well, anyway, your, your church has been a support of, of us personally, but then among you, many of you have been to Togo, and so I, some of this is not new to you, but just for you to understand, uh, some of you came out on construction crews to help the hospital, um, the impact that that ministry is having. Uh, we sang, I need you every hour, I need you. Uh, there are so many days, I think, when both my wife and I, that's kind of the plea of our heart, because we can't do what we do without you all, but the Lord is who gives us strength. And I think uh, one of our goals as a team, if you came out on one of those mission teams on construction side, maybe you remember um, Mr. Weinberg. And he used to tell, I went on one of those construction teams too, uh, to see what Mongo was like, because we hadn't been there before moving there. And one of his big things he always said is, we are here to bring God glory. Like, make God look good was his statement. Make God look good, make God look good. And that's really, uh, we all live to bring glory to someone. That's just how we are built. And constantly we need to remind ourselves, who is it we're supposed to be bringing God glory for? Well, there's Togo. Uh, some people have derogatory re commented it's in the armpit of Africa. Seems kind of harsh, so we won't say that, but... There's Togo. It's a little skinny country next to Benin, Ghana, and Burkina Faso above us with more, more than 40 people groups that are there, um, so many different languages. In our hospital, more than nine languages are spoken every day. We have a little team of translators, and that's pretty much all they do is translate for us because we understand French, which is the national language, but only about 50% of our population actually speaks uh, French. Togo is a little skinny country, and we are up north, near the top of that in the skinniest part. You would arrive in Lome usually at the bottom, and you'd take an eight-hour trip north, dodging accidents along the way and all kinds of uh, episodes. <laughs> you see a, a bull in the back of this Toyota Corolla. He's tucked in there with his horns and everything. Uh, you'll see things like the, the chicken bike, right? It has all, all things. Actually, guinea fowl is tucked in there. They decided there was more than 50 guinea fowl on this motorbike, plus a goat hanging over the front just for good measure. Uh, this is my photo I showed you this morning where I was taking my cell phone and recording this gentleman I was passing on my motorcycle because uh, he was driving his cow to market. So <laughs> I thought that was kind of a fun little... And along the way, you might break down. You'll see great, I call it road theology. Man, no be God. No food for lazy man. Gas stations and uh, truck accidents. And this one was a fun one because this town, actually, their young people helped load that truck after it broke down onto a semi. We don't have AAA, evidently. So. All that to say, you will arrive at the hospital up north after an eight-hour drive, sometimes nine hours. On my motorcycle, I've made it in six, but we don't tell Melissa that. And... <laughs> There's the hospital from the air, 60 acres, walled off, uh, houses along the back row, the hospital up on the front there. We've built a couple houses since this uh, time, and we have a big area where we also do farming ministries, so some of the open fields there during rainy season are uh, farming projects. And so there's the dry season photo, same photo in the, in the rainy season. We are just finishing rainy season right now, and we will go into six or seven months where we will not receive a drop of rain. That's what brings us to the brown picture usually. And all of that is because uh, we are there to help the people of Togo. Our hospital is there to provide physical help, but more important than that, we see the Hospital of Hope as a platform to declare who Jesus is in a very dark and troubled area. And we have so many opportunities uh, every day to do that. We have a chaplaincy team that circulates and teaches and uh, shows the Jesus film and prays for our patients. 
One day my wife was at the front entry, here she is at the front entry, sorting through patients to determine who's sick enough to come in that day. You know, since opening in 2015, we have never had a, a long period when there's not been a crowd at the front, more people than we can accept in. Generally, it takes seven to 10 days to get into the hospital if you are there for a non-urgent reason. So she'll go out there and they'll assess who's urgent, they come in, um, and then one time she was going down the row and she came to this lady and, and she's like, okay, what is your ailment? Why are you here today? Where are you hurt, basically? And this lady said, I have no physical problem. But this lady had come just because uh, she was from a region that's, I would say, a very dark region just north of us. Uh, she was in full um, Muslim garb, and she had gone to her brother, who was a leader in the mosque, and said, you know how I've struggled all these years with these terrible nightmares and, and dreams. Uh, I, I'm out of help. And he said, well, we've tried helping you, and I have no options, but I know there's this new hospital in Manga. And it's run by Christians, but just go there and tell them what's going on and maybe they can help you. And this is not uncommon. So this lady showed up at our gate and she had no physical ailment at all. And she was there because she felt so troubled in these dreams and nightmares she was having. Um, and just kind of a, a depression she was facing that she had the opportunity to speak with our chaplains and go back home with a new uh, hope that wasn't there before. And we see that fairly regularly. Uh, we, many people come to us because of physical problems, but along the way they realize they're really struggling with other issues as well. And our chaplains have done a great job of bringing hope to those situations. We're in the end of malaria season right now. I talked with Alan Niles, one of my colleagues out there. He recently returned as a physician's assistant. He was out there as the hospital's director the first four years, went back to the States to be trained as a PA because he saw so many needs. And he told me the last shift he was on at the hospital, they transfused 11 patients. And during a 12-hour period, our 65-bed hospital lost six infants to malaria. And that's a very hard reality of just malaria season in Mongo. Um, and so there's the heartbreak, and they're seeing heartbreak, and you're trying to provide compassionate care. But out of that, there are many opportunities to share the gospel. Our hospital um, provides compassionate care, uh, I would say, to keep our clinic and hospital running smoothly. Uh, he used the word smoothly roughly here, uh, loosely. It requires a team of Togolese employees nowadays that numbers more than 200, and a missionary team of 30 or 40 people uh, working together. So we have a full lab, we've got, uh, of course, laundry services, our nursing teams, and all of this is in order to provide hope to patients and to provide hope to our region. And what great opportunities we have had also to share um, just helping our employee staff. Here, all of our employees get free uh, health care. In this situation, there's also a free dental care we offer for cleaning their teeth. You know, people die in West Africa somewhat regularly from an abscessed tooth. And so having that facility has been a huge help. That's our, our, our hospital team. Uh, we have the opportunity many times of going out and visiting our hospital employees as they have new babies in their homes and taking them a gift. And then as a family, uh, we are so thankful for our teachers that come and teach our children. This year, there's more than 30 children from kindergarten through eighth grade. We have one school teacher out there, so that's one of our our things we're looking for this year is someone to come out and say, I'm willing to spend nine months or nine years or more on our team as a school teacher. It's an adventure. Uh, we have a wonderful class there. One of these teachers has returned to the States to take another position. And so we have one teacher right now and a lot of parents uh, filling in on that. But what a great impact also they have. Uh, we work together as a team and those teachers have an opportunity to pour into our kids. And Aunt Kelly there has just finished last year 30 plus years of teaching missionary kids in Togo and the lives she's touched and changed for eternity in that role also. Um, on a mission team like ours, there's just many different roles people play. Here our son Aaron is uh, doing construction two days a week. We say it's work release where he gets out of school and gets to go work on the construction team. Also helps him with some of his French as he works with the, the Togolese crew there. Our hospital uh, isn't the only ministry our team runs in Northern Togo. We also have Hope Radio now. Uh, Hope Radio is broadcasting in French, Anafo and Gamgam, our local languages, and Fofolde, I believe, also. And so they're teaching people that come to the hospital and have a connection and, and learn a little bit about God. They're growing their faith through the radio broadcasting of those people that are close to us. And then this year, we opened a, a facility. We've had the Bon Berger, the Good Shepherd uh, Elementary School, uh, running for two years now. It's been in kind of a small house and then rented party tents basically with the white tents with the walls. And this year we finished construction on uh, 
the Bon Berger, the Good Shepherd School building, and more than 200 students are enrolled there uh, with teachers who are all strong believing, uh, most of them are ladies, there's one gentleman, but they're teaching Christian values and they're teaching Christian stories uh, to mostly, honestly, Muslim children who are learning for the first time what the Bible says, and they're also getting a, a wonderful education to the point that a lot of our leading Muslims, even in our town, want their children to go to this school because they know they're gonna get a good education. And they would say, despite the Christian values, they want them in the school, but their kids, I think, are gonna be an exciting turn in our community as these children grow with a different value system taught to them. Our team has also now drilled more than 93 wells in the surrounding Mongo area, bringing clean water to people that in some situations were walking two miles with a bucket on their head to get water from a very stagnant pool. During the end of dry season, water is hard to find generally, and some of the water sources uh, you'd be amazed at. Uh, just a lot of other opportunities. We have a cataract surgery uh, campaign that we've hosted two or three times now in our facility where they come in and over a period of two weeks, they do four to 500 cataract surgeries, allowing people who've not been able to see for years sometimes to see again for the first time. All of this is uh, wonderful, and we love being a part of all that, but we have the added joy of seeing lives changed for eternity by the hope that comes from knowing Jesus Christ. And you're seeing here a picture of a small group that's being led by a man named Akim in his village. And as we look at all of this that can all of this that's being done, uh, nothing can be said but, but to give God praise for what, is, what he's doing, what he has done. Our chaplains are ministering on the spiritual level to people every day that come to our hospital, and some of them live at our hospital. There's over 100 people that usually live on the hospital grounds, and our chaplains are able to do Bible studies with those people and also just encourage them. Some of them come very discouraged or thinking, some of them have struggled. We've seen people that have non-union non femur breaks. That means their femur broke and it never connected. And some of them are years with that sort of an injury. And they are able to get their leg repaired and they're able to walk again uh, fairly quickly with some technology. Uh, actually, it's based here in Washington State. There's a sign nail is what it's called. And it's a metal rod system meant mostly for third world countries. And we are able to get people up and walking and back to jobs and pretty quickly, but in the meantime, they're also receiving a lot of encouragement and Bible training. This is one of our uh, hospital outreaches where we help the prisoners in our, our local prison has between two and 300 prisoners at any given time, and most of them have not had communication with someone outside of prison since they got in, and so by our chaplains and doctors at times going there to help with clinics, uh, that has been a huge encouragement. And also when those uh, prisoners are very sick, we've offered free care. We've told the prison officials, bring them to our clinic and we will offer free care. It allows an opportunity for someone who's been very discouraged. Uh, the justice system in Togo is very slow. Maybe, maybe you've felt that here as well. But there you can be put into prison and your day in court can be months and sometimes years before you even get an audience. So some of these people have never been declared guilty or, or innocent. And so to have them treated by a doctor who, who values them as a person, invites the chaplain in one-on-one -on -one to encourage them during that time. It's a great opportunity. Um, this is a picture of Nakim also. Right before we left for furlough, um, actually the week we were getting ready to leave, so it's the Sunday before we were gonna leave town. We left town on Wednesday. I said, I have to go last Sunday to Nakim's church because I've worked with Nakim for many years now since our first term. And so we all went out there and sat in the front row. Usually if you show up, you get shown into the front row. In my mind, I'm going through my list of items that I have to take care of before leaving for a furlough where you empty our house and everything goes into the container and you get your house completely emptied and you get your cars all set up so they won't rot for two years or, or the year you're gone. And I'm going through this list and then I realized uh, Nakim is asking me to come to the front because we're gonna do a baby dedication. And I don't even know if I had been paying attention too well because in Togo, boys and girls as babies are kind of dressed, it's interchangeable. Like they could be wearing all on pink and it's still a boy. And so Nakim turns to me and says, well, this child needs a Christian name, and I would like you to give it a Christian name. And I hadn't been paying attention to find out if this child was a boy or a girl. <laughs> so this is where you're like so thankful for a wife who's a huge help and uh, helpmate, because I kind of looked at her helplessly, and she looks at me like, Daniel? And I'm like, oh, it's a boy, okay. <laughs> I, I choose Daniel. But... This little baby was a child of a man who had been a prisoner. And Nakim, at works part-time as one of our chaplains, led this man to Christ. And when this man was out of prison, 
he then brought his wife to Nakim. And it's a very interesting story because this man was a, a Muslim who had found a Christian girl he wanted to marry, and he required that she convert to Islam in order to marry him. And so she had become a Muslim dutifully years before uh, and married him. He found Christ in jail, went back to his wife and said, I'm a Christian now, and she thought it was a trap. She thought, uh, I don't know about this. And so Nakim and his wife had to go and talk with her and say, we've worked with him, this is a very serious thing. And when she realized that, he, uh, Nakim says her face just like lit up, like it was so, like this moment of joy, like in her heart she'd always wanted still to be a Christian, and so she was able to return to the faith that she loved. So this week, uh, they had had a baby, uh, shortly after he'd been out of prison a few months at this point. And they had this baby, and they dedicated him at this church that Nakim leads. And I just like, this is a wonderful moment where our leader in this group is dedicating this baby for this person he led to Christ in prison, who then he was involved also in leading his wife back to the Lord, if you will, or to the Lord. I'm not sure how that worked. But anyway, it was, it was a wonderful, wonderful picture and a reminder as I pulled out of town of what was really important. It wasn't my list. It was these lives that God really is changing. Well, I want to look this morning, uh, we've seen lives radically changed by the power of God, and today we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, where Paul gives thanks for lives radically changed by the gospel. Um, what we do, we change, we help lives, but we are honestly uh, more proud of what the Lord is doing in changing people's hearts and changing people's lives on a spiritual level. Thessalonians is a letter that is written by Paul to a very special group of people. Uh, group of, a group of people that he deeply loves, a group of people, uh, we would say a church, that he has established on his second missionary journey. Luke tells us in Acts 16 how that happened. So we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians today, but I want to flip back just a minute and give us a brief overview of how the church in Thessalonica was established. Basically, Paul and his team were moving from the east toward the west across Asia Minor, they tried to go in one direction. The Holy Spirit said, no, you're not going that way. And Paul says, basically, the, the road was blocked to do that. They tried to go in another direction, and the Holy Spirit says, no, you're not going that way. Well, at the end of that, Paul has a dream where he sees, it's called the Macedonian call. He sees a man in his vision, in his dream, saying, come over to Macedonia. They're in Troas at this point, which is now in modern-day Turkey by the sea there. Uh, we've been there. The Lord has allowed us to visit Troas and, and, and see Ephesus. But while he was there in Troas, he gets this vision. It says, come on over. And believing this is, to be, this is God's will, uh, they go. And so I'm going to pick us up in Acts chapter 17, 1 through 9. You don't have to go there. You can if you want. But Acts chapter 17 tells us how the church in Thessalonica was established. And it says, now when they had passed through two towns, they give the names here, but I won't slaughter the pronunciation, they come to Thessalonica where there's a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned, reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer, to raise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, who I proclaim to you, is Christ. And some of them were persuaded. So he's gone to the synagogue, which was his custom. He's told them, Jesus actually is the fulfillment of your law. And some of the Jews were persuaded. And they joined Paul and Silas, it says here, as did a great many of the devout Greeks. So in that synagogue, there was also Greek people who had joined the Jewish religion, not choosing their idol worshiping around, but wanted to be followers, and they were convinced. So a few of the Jews, many of the Greeks, and it says not a few of the leading women. So there was women leadership who also bought into this idea, and not a few of them. Well, this sounds like great news, but it says the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble. Uh, not exactly sure what that means. It's obviously people that were troublemakers. Uh, if you look at the King James Version, sometimes I do that just for fun because I grew up with the King James Version. It says, lewd fellows of the baser sort. And I was like, ooh, that's cool. But <laughs> they formed a mob and they set the city in an uproar and they attacked the house of Jason, which was the Airbnb where Paul was staying. And seeking to bring them out to the crowd, when they could not find them, so Paul wasn't there, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And in the end, Jason, this host of theirs, is required to give uh, cash as a 
security or, or, or proof that these men that he's hosting will not cause trouble. And the idea is really it's a security deposit. And so not wanting for Jason to lose that or for other Christians to have problems there, Paul at that point leaves town. When they had taken the money, the security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Well, this just gives you an idea of where Thessalonica is. This letter is written to Thessalonica, the believers at Thessalonica, and this is how that church was established. It was upon the arrival in Thessalonica, Paul went to the synagogue. He was there three weeks, we know, maybe a little bit on each end. Uh, It probably wasn't just preaching Sunday. It was probably working in the evenings and throughout the week. We know that he poured into their lives. In fact, we know that he... Uh, It says in other parts he worked day and night to support himself. So he also had some sort of maybe tent-making business going on where probably people were beside him, and all day long he was talking through his understanding of who Jesus was and how that fit into scriptures. Well, Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians from Corinth. And so what happens is, is this church is established, and it says these gentlemen chase them out of town, basically. He he's not required he's not allowed to stay there any longer. They then traveled 50 miles to Berea. It's a 50-mile journey from Thessalonica to Berea. And they start doing ministry there. They is Paul and Timothy and Silas at this point. And these gentlemen, the lewd, whoever they were, yeah, lewd fellows of the baser sort, uh, you know, troublemakers back in the day really had it hard. Uh, Troublemakers nowadays or angry mobs, I guess you could say. We've we've seen, as living in Togo, I've heard about your angry mobs here in the States, and honestly, we only hear the really bad stuff. So we were almost a little apprehensive to go back to America where it's not safe. We'd rather stay in Togo. (laughs) No, not quite that bad. But this angry mob from Thessalonica that didn't want Paul around, they had to do it old school. They didn't have Twitter where they could tweet over to Berea and say, don't let these guys stay. They had to go to the closet, find their good walking Birkenstocks, and travel that 50 miles. That's how dedicated they were to make sure that Paul didn't stay in Berea. And so we know that this group from Thessalonica that hated this idea of Paul disrupting their lives so much, they were willing to take to the road, go 50 miles, and chase him out of Berea. Now, uh, he leaves behind Timothy, and we, have, we understand that the church in Berea actually did well. But th- that is the, the, the type of group that Paul was... Um, up against there in Thessalonica. Well, from Berea, so he's chased out of Berea. He goes down to Athens. He spends a little time there. There's a sermon where he says this unknown God sermon is mocked a little bit. And then Paul ends up going to Corinth. And so when we get the book of Thessalonica, Thessalonians, excuse me, it's because while he was in Athens, he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to check on the believers there and to see how they were doing. And so the book of 1 Thessalonians is written after Timothy comes to Paul in Corinth. Paul was probably, I'm guessing, a discouraged person at this point. Now, I don't think I'm making up a case for an emotion that wasn't there. He actually arrived first in Philippi before coming to Thessalonians, Thessalonica. He was chased out of Philippi after being beaten publicly, disrobed, and yes, there were some Christian converts there, but he got chased out of town, went 100 miles to Thessalonica, basically chased out of town. Berea, chased out of town. Athens, mocked after his sermon, and he ends up in Corinth. And he's wondering, that vision I saw, God's saying, come on over here. Like, what was that all about? It doesn't feel like it was super successful at this moment. But he gets this report from Timothy saying, the believers in Thessalonica, they're doing all right. They're surviving. They're thriving. In fact, we're going to pick it up in 1 Thessalonians. But Paul is so encouraged from his report that he writes back to them after Timothy brings him this report, and this is his letter to them, 1 Thessalonians. It begins by Paul in verse 2 and 3 in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, declaring that he gives God thanks for them constantly, remembering them in his prayers because of their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness in hope. To Paul, faith results in works. Labor is shown in love And hope is seen in steadfastness or perseverance. You you see, he found that there's a group of people there who were carrying on. They weren't just carrying on, but they they were bearing difficulties with blazing hope and not just simple resignation. So today we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians, the 1 Thessalonians, verses 4 and 5. It says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because of 
our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. This begins by Paul saying, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you because our gospel, he takes that as ownership a little bit, came to you not only in word. Uh, this is important because for Paul, work, your, your faith has legs. Your faith walks. It's not just something you hold and you, you check in on the, at the synagogue or the church and you, you check out. But he says, your faith have, has words. So I would say my first point here is the gospel has power. The first step, it's received. The gospel is received by people who maybe haven't heard it or understood it properly. And he said here, the gospel came not only in word. You see, sometimes there's this saying out there. It's attributed to Francis of Assisi. And it's preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. And there's some people who are going to nod and say amen, and I can hear you there. You know there's a problem with this quote, though, because Francis of Assisi never actually said this. There's no proof he ever said this. And some of his other writings kind of contradict this, actually. Well, why would I say that? Because when necessary, use words. You, you see, God's message isn't just when necessary. Necessary. Words are always important. He said the message of the gospel didn't come to you in word only, but also in action. So words are a requirement. You can't have the gospel without sharing the words. There's a, actually, let me go back to this. There's a, a, a time when, when we look at things and we say, okay, I need to have a life that matches my message, and that is absolutely true. We've seen so many people's lives destroyed when they preached a certain message, but secretly they lived something else completely. God's message um, has to be proclaimed with deep conviction by people living a life consistent with the message that they're proclaiming. That is absolutely true. There were words, Paul used words, and power, and the Holy Spirit, and human messengers. All of these ingredients were necessary for the gospel to be proclaimed. And that's what we see in our lives, too. Whether it's here in America or in Togo, you have to have words declaring the gospel, but your life needs to line up with that as well. The Bible tells us that there are certain truths. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Other people hear when someone declares a message. A message has to be declared. You can love people, you can serve people, you can care for people and model a great life. And your life might encourage people to model you a little bit. It, it might bring up curiosity. I mean, I was always under the belief for many years, if I live a certain way, people are going to come up to me, they're going to ask you, what makes you different? Sometimes that happens. But that's kind of a passive view of the gospel. I should have been better at declaring what the gospel was. When there will come a time when we will need to tell the story from start to finish, sin, redemption, Jesus Christ, death and resurrection, and why that matters. If we just live a life hoping others may follow our good example, this is a good thing, but it's not sufficient. And I look at that as the hospital's ministry every day. We can do great things and model love and compassion, but if I just stopped there, I've helped broken people live longer in a very broken and many times painful situation. I also need to be declaring who Jesus Christ is so that they can have a hope that endures past the difficulties of this life. You see, what got Paul in trouble was uh, not the fact that he was living a good life in front of people, but that he was declaring who Jesus Christ was. And Paul dialogues with Jewish people about uh, the fulfillment of scriptures in Jesus, and that's when things always got a little dicey. Our lives might get dicey, but the Lord requires us to be people who declare the gospel, both with our words and with our actions. I uh, have a picture here of a young man who is one of our security guards. Whoops, going ahead too far here. For years, he's worked with us, and there came a moment when he asked me by text, could I have a Bible? And I'm like, what kind of missionary would I be if I said no to that, right? And it was like a couple weeks before we left for furlough. And he's seen our hospital and each of us missionaries, hopefully, model a Christian life. And so I, I said, sure, come on by for a Bible. And he wanted to come after hours because he didn't want anybody to know he was asking for this Bible. And so I gave him a Bible and I gave him the pamphlet of John and I said, read through the pamphlet of John first. And if you have questions, just let me know. Well, WhatsApp, a texting app that we use all the time, uh, started blowing up with his questions next morning. 
like this verse, what does this mean, and what does this mean? And, and if I didn't get back to him right away, he'd send me like these urgent little messages like, this is important, I have today off, I have to figure this out. And so quickly I realized we needed more than just WhatsApp messages back and forth. So I said, you know what, why don't we meet and we'll read through John together. And if you have questions, we can just talk through it. And so he actually went the first night we met at my house. Uh, but we live on the compound where you have to come through the front gate and come back and spend time. And so everybody knows you came by to see me or whatever. And that's sometimes a little dicey. And so he went out. He makes roughly $100, $125 a month is his salary as a security guard. Uh, he went out and rented a room for $10 of that. So, yeah, not a small amount. This room is a cement room with one light bulb in the middle, and it had a Muslim prayer mat on the floor with his Bible study there, his Bible study booklet I had given him and his Bible. And we would meet, and I was reminded daily every time I went there uh, how old I am because you sit on the cement mat floor and try to get up after about an hour of, of meeting. But what a great opportunity. Uh, he, we only met usually at evening time, so actually evening. After the kids went to bed, I'd call him and say, are you free now? And it's 10 o'clock or whatever, and so 10.30, 10 o'clock to 11 or 11.30. Uh, we would read through that and answer questions. And, and I was reminded that the gospel requires words. And we read through the book of John. Uh, we started through a Bible study called The Story of Hope. And actually, the week we were leaving, I was only about less than 18 into that out of 30-some. And I met one of my Togolese brothers who is a nurse at our hospital. And I said, you know, I know you're super busy. And I give you a couple of days to give me an answer if you want. But I have this Bible study going on with this guy who speaks your language. Do you have any desire? Because this... This gentleman was really worried that I was leaving and leaving him in a lurch. Do you have somebody lined up? And, and so this nurse said, I don't need a couple days to decide. I, that's why I'm here. And it was a huge encouragement to me to see some of our Christian uh, co-laborers at the hospital step forward. And so he, when I got back here, we got back in June, I started getting texts from this nurse. And it's like, pray for Ikui. He's, he's growing in his faith. I think he's a believer, but he's trying to figure out how to tell his family. And several meetings, even recently, they're still meeting. They're still studying God's word together. And Ikui is still, I would say, counting the cost. I believe he may have made a decision in his heart, but he's trying to figure out how to tell his family that. Because he knows his father could take his children, his wife away from him, and all of his possessions. He currently lives in the family compound, so he probably can't live there. And uh, maybe his father would not act in the norm, but that's all very real possibility. And so just a reminder that the gospel changes lives, but the gospel requires us to speak up and tell somebody, and to challenge them. Because we could have, I could have put that off and said, you know what, I'm too busy. And I might be tempted sometimes. I probably overlook some possibilities. The, the gospel has to be uh, received. That's the first step. All of that story with Ikui uh, came out of a story where my wife was very involved in his mother uh, passing away with grace when she was diagnosed with an incurable disease. And her one desire was for her little baby to not die when she died. And so Ikue, seeing us go and put feet to our faith and go sometimes in the middle of the night to adjust her meds or figure out what this mother needed. And as his mother passed away and this little baby uh, was given formula and other ways to make sure that he wasn't gonna die with her, the baby was sent back to the village with grandma. This is grandma. Uh, we went to visit with Ikue one day and this baby, we, we asked the mother, can we take your picture? And so she put her scarf on, and I asked her, like, how many children do you have? And she has four children, she said. And then Ikue said, well, ask her how many she birthed. She has given birth to 11 children. Uh, I think it was five or six died between the age of, like, kindergarten and fourth grade. And so just hardships that she's endured, but that's not uncommon where we're at. And to, so to see her, her child now is alive, I would say, because of the efforts of the hospital. And all of that played a part in Ikue understanding He'd seen love lived out in front of him. He'd seen people invest in his life, and that made him curious, yes, but if I had just left it, that it was insufficient. He needed to hear the gospel as well. So the Bible study that we, we, we did there. We're going to look at verses 6 and 7. Um, uh, in verse 6, it says, And you became imitators of us, Paul is writing, and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. If the persecution that drove Paul away continued, which there's no reason to think it didn't, those people were motivated enough to walk 50 miles. The believers who remained in Thessalonica 
must have faced pressures on a daily basis to return to the other gods of the city. In fact, there must have been cultural events and full city gatherings that they no longer felt a part of. And just not going was a type of persecution. Like every day of their lives, I am sure, were miserable. So it was not uh, surprising that Paul maybe felt a little surprised that their, their faith, which had grown in those three weeks, had sustained them enough that they could stand up to this group and continue to remain strong. A Christ-like reaction to trials is a powerful influence. It says here, you became an example to all others. You received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You see, faithfulness in affliction is very powerful, and people will, will see that and respond. But you know what is more powerful, and we see that in the situation, is faithfulness in affliction with the joy of the Lord. These people were facing daily difficulties, and it says they are still being noticed as people who have the joy of the Lord. One of the most joy, well, I would say, yeah, the gospel is first of all received, and then it rearranges your lives, because I had to have an R, right? So it changes you, rearranges your lives. One of the most joy-filled people I know is Hama. He's one of our chaplains now. Hama, as a young teenager, well, older teenager and into his 20s, was being trained to be a marabu. A marabu is an Islamic um, witch doctor. He was under the uh, tutelage of a marabu guru who made a tour of several West Africa countries. They would go out, they'd do these tours, and then they would come back and he'd be back at the house. And so one of these times after he'd followed his marabu guru on these tours where they had, a, they usually set up a, a meeting and people would pay them money and they would write out Arabic scriptures and things to cure problems and there's some money, like a fundraising a campaign, if you will. Oddly, they actually printed fake money and uh, somehow made more money that way as well. But anyway, the Islamic witch doctor guru had come back from his tour. Hama was back, and Hama's family said, we have a new neighbor. And in Africa, you don't just say, oh, that's interesting, we have a new neighbor. You have to, of course, go greet them, ask about their children, ask about everything possible. And this is actually kind of a time-taking thing at the hospital, too. Every day you go to the hospital, I can't just go up there and say, where's this study? You have to go in there and greet them and say, how are you doing? How is your wife? How is your children? I always say, like, how are your sheep? How are your cats? How are your dogs? And it's just kind of, they all laugh, and, and we carry on. Well, Hama had to go greet his neighbor. And so he went and greeted, greeted his neighbor. And he, his neighbor said, what do you do? And Hama said, I'm training to be a marabu. And very proud of that, because that's kind of a, a position of power and authority in, in Toko. And this gentleman said, well, that's interesting. I'm a marabu also. He's like, oh, really? Who's your guru? And so uh, he said, well, my leader wrote this book. And so he gave him a Fulani New Testament. I'm not sure that's the most traditional way to share your faith, is to say, I'm a witch doctor for Jesus. But in Hama's case, it worked. And Hama started reading this because uh, Hamidu, this new neighbor, told him, read these passages, and they would come, and they would talk, and then Hamid, Hama would go out on his tour, and he had this little New Testament. He said he hid it deep in his bag, and when everyone else on this tour was asleep at night, he'd read through that to the point where he came back one time, and he'd read through the whole New Testament, and he's told Hama, well, Hama told Hamidu, it's a little confusing here, if what I'm reading is true, then I'm actually doing things that displease God with my current life. And Hamidu said, yeah, that's true. And Hama decided he was going to follow Jesus Christ at that point. He went home and told his wife, I think I'm a Christian now. And he knew that would change their life because what he's doing for his livelihood was gone. And his wife said, well, if that's what you are, I am too. And he said in a couple weeks, his wife started noticing changes in his life where Hama, I would say the most joy-filled person I know nowadays, one of the most joy-filled people, uh, changed so much that his wife said, what he has is real, and I want to be a part of that. And uh, Hama got plugged in with some Christian missionaries. He, this has all happened in Burkina Faso, just north of us. Uh, he got plugged in with some Christian missionaries who paid for him to go to a Bible Institute. So he spent two years in Bible Institute. He came back for the summer between his second and third year in Bible Institute. Uh, he was out with his family uh, getting a cow, actually. The goal was to bring the cow back. They were going to sell it. Part of the money was going to help him go back to school and help the family. And while he was out there, uh, a number of motorbikes with men showed up, and they took Hama, put a, a sheet or a sack or something over his head. He said he was blindfolded, and he was hauled four hours to a jihadist camp. Now, Burkina Faso, north of us, please pray for this country. It's a huge mess. Uh, September 30th, less two weeks ago, uh, they suffered their second coup in less than nine months. Right now, they have a 34-year-old leader. Uh, their, their frustrations of the country are boiling over because Burkina Faso's government only has control of about 60% of the landmass. The other 40% is, is taken by different jihadist groups 
where the government can't even go there. Hama was hauled to one of these camps, and for several days he was told, today you're going to be killed unless you recant. They understood that he had, uh, they were, they were uh, lancing, or not lancing, what do you say, the, the French word. They were uh, telling him, these are the accusations we've heard about you. You have uh, become a Christian, and you're converting others to Christ. And then they had some other false things, too. You've steal, you're stealing, most of the stuff was false, but he clearly had been already called out as somebody who was, a Christ follower who was having an impact. And so he was told every day, you have to recant or you're going to kill you today. You have to kill you today. And finally, uh, he was actually called in. They kind of did this bad guy, good guy thing. And the, and the chief of the camp actually called Hama to come. At night, he was placed under a tarp with other hostages. Uh, they were all tied together. But he said during those days, he had an opportunity to share his faith with his captors. And also, the second night or so, he had a dream where he said this man in white in his dream came to him broke through the walls, and said, follow me, Hama. And Hama said he didn't, in his mind, he had seen Jesus encouraging him. He said he didn't really know at that point if, if God was telling him, follow me and, and you're going to live, or follow me and you're going to die. But he said his, his fear went away at that point. And so he was just bravely proclaiming who God was. And as this leader of the camp played good guy and, and brought Hama in and, and gave him tea and told him, all you need to do is just go home, get your family, come back to our camp, let your whole family know that you're actually a Muslim, and that was all a joke, um, then you'll live, and it's not a problem at all. And Hama once again said, no, I'm not going to do that. And he expected he'd be killed that day. But it actually, they loaded him back on a motorcycle, and they drove him six hours to where they had picked him up, and they dropped him off. And they told him, you have a certain number of days until you have to be back at your camp, you have to recant to your faith, and your whole family has to understand that you're no longer a Christian. And so out of that, the Christian community in Burkina Faso at that point helped Hama. Uh, they reached out through Voice of the Martyrs and other resources, and Hama got placed at our hospital, we had been praying, asking that the Lord would provide to us a Fulani-speaking chaplain because uh, we are seeing a huge influx of people from Burkina Faso. Some days, 80% of the people at our gate are from Burkina Faso. And the Fulani people group, it's one of the least-reached people groups in the world, mostly nomadic, um, are very hard uh, to find a strong believer who's able to share their faith. But we have little groups of people that have been chased out of Burkina Faso that are now living around our hospital in the region north of us. And so it was a great opportunity where the Lord provided Hama to come to our hospital and to share his faith. And uh, I say the joy part because I had the opportunity of meeting Hama's father, a stoic, tall, Muslim man. And he was visiting Hama down in, near our hospital one day. And I went over and met with him. And I said, has Hama always been just like this laughter, joy-filled person? And Hama's dad just looked at me and he's like, you know what? He was the most like solemn and kind of just no expression on his face of a person growing up. Very like uh, sulky, I think is what the word we would say in, in English. He's like, this person, this homo you see now is only after he met Jesus. And that's someone who doesn't even necessarily, at that time he wasn't a Jesus follower. He has since moved closer to Mongo and stopped going to the mosque and actually is in a church nowadays, Hama's father. But how amazing to see that the gospel had been received it had changed Hama's life to the point where he was not afraid of difficulties that were going to come to his life. And Hama and Hamidu um, actually both worked at our hospital then as chaplains. Hamidu, who led Hama to Christ, uh, came to our hospital as a chaplain as well. And the ministry they've had to other Fulani men in our region is uh, very exciting. We have a Fulani center where we have now workshops and we bring Fulani people in and then uh, also are able to see the Fulani uh, people group, I think, impacted for the Lord. My last section here, I'm going to look at verse 8. It says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned from God, excuse me, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, there's a lot there, but the bottom line is the story of these people had gone far and wide, and that's what Paul has found out, is that this little group of persecuted believers, their story now is being recounted to other people, and other people are hearing. What are they hearing? They're hearing that they turned to God from idols and that they are serving that God and waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. And this isn't a passive waiting. It's a waiting understanding. My home is not here. Jesus is coming back, and I need to live in a way that shows that. There's three actions we see here. They're turning to God from idols, to serve, and to wait. 
Turning from idols and vain things in life is something that we all have to choose to do at some point, too. It may not be as drastic as some of the things we see. But turning to serve and to wait, keep these three things in our mind this week. Have we turned from our idols, the things that we wish to serve in this life? And are we serving the Lord? And are we waiting, looking, understanding Jesus is coming back and there is wrath to come, unsatisfied anger from God on a sinful world and that we are supposed to be proclaiming a message of hope. Now, I've seen idol worshipers and I've seen people turn to God from idols. I told you about Nakim, who led that Bible study, led that gentleman in prison, and then was the pastor at this church where I named Daniel um, as a Christian name for this baby. Well, in this picture is one of the early pictures I have of Nakim. On the right is Dudoni, one of our chaplains. Nakim is in a brown striped shirt holding a box that actually has a radio which plays. Um, we gave him an SD card which had the gospel on it, and then they could play it on this radio. So this Bible study group came about because the gentleman crouched in the front holding a box uh, came to our hospital with a problem that would have killed him. He received an emergency surgery uh, from Todd DeKrieger at the time, was our only surgeon. He later passed away from loss of fever at our one-year anniversary. Uh, Todd did. This gentleman outlived him by a few years, but ended up passing away a few years back as well. But this whole group here was established because that man accepted Christ at our hospital, wanted that message told to his family and community, and so we started doing this little Bible study. And this is the week when we went out and gave them two different uh, radios that played the, the, the audio Bible so they could listen to the story before we arrived the next week. And Dudoni, the chaplain, speaks Gam Gam, which is the language here. But he chose to teach in French and then ask Nakim in the brown shirt to translate from French to Gam Gam because he wanted Nakim to start to understand how to teach, even though at this point Nakim wasn't a believer. Years later, Nakim has come to faith. Nakim has gone to a Bible institute. And today, Nakim leads a little gathering that we went to before we left the field. And that's where I got to, to witness to that, excuse me, whoops, going too far, where I got to hold that baby. Uh, but Nakim is a young man who I would say he represents to me a life changed and a life that turned from idols. I can still remember the day his father passed away. And when someone's father dies, it's a really big deal. There was a huge funeral. Nakim and his siblings were not responsible for the funeral. Nakim's uncle was because he was seen as the next person responsible in the family. And so we were invited, Dudoni and I, out to witness the uh, funeral of Nakim's father. And wow, what a sight, because his uncle had paid for a very expensive uh, witch doctor, marabou type of person, to sit out in the field and to cast stones and chant and throw sticks to decipher what the spirit said had caused the death of their father. And at the end of this, the family breathed a sigh of relief when it was declared he was just old and the spirits would be appeased by a mere goat or a mere sheep. He had the possibility of saying the family has to sacrifice a cow, which they couldn't afford, or to say, worse yet, someone in the family was responsible because they had done something, which they may or may not have done. But this is very common. So at the end, uh, he declared a sheep just had to be paid, and for hours, this witch doctor man threw shells and sticks and chanted, and there was a line of more than 100 people who came to him and asked him to solve their problems, paid him money, and he did a chant and spell and, and solved, in his mind, problems of infertility and relationship problems and land ownership problems, and that was done all day long. So that was idol worshiping was what was happening there. Several days after this whole funeral thing had ended, Nakim asked Dudone and I to come out and said, my siblings and I want to talk with you. And as we approached Nakim's house, uh, where Nakim now lived, his father and mother had been there. Siblings were still there for the funeral, but the older parts of the family had left. Uh, strewn in the field, it was a dry season, so the corn stubble was there, but then there was all these feathers and bands and all the things people usually use to tie up to protect themselves from spirits. They were just thrown in the field. And as we entered, uh, we sat in the front and the family declared to us, we've met as a family and we've decided what we've served all these years hasn't helped us. And we choose as a family to serve Jesus Christ. And they had represented the depth of their conviction by throwing out all these little things their father had kept with, in their mind, lots of spirit power, power. And they were just out in the field. That day, that family turned to God from idols to serve and to wait. And to see Nakim's life now change just reminds me, he's someone that is declaring God's message, the, the gospel, to people who maybe have never heard it before. Um, 
Paul was reminding converts that turning from the gospel would mean returning to alternatives they'd already dismissed as unsatisfying. I don't know about you, but some of you came to church and you got involved in ministry and you've seen people walk away. Well, most of us have understood that the things the world offers, other, other gospels that are presented, are not satisfying. And that's what Nakim's family came to understand, is everything they had been taught had not satisfied, and they wanted the, the hope that only comes through the Lord. Friends, for you and I, though persecution may come, Jesus is worth it. This is really the message of 1 Thessalonians. Because he's talking to people that are persecuted, and he's encouraging them. He's first of all encouraged, but he's encouraging them. Though persecution may come, Jesus is worth it. That's Paul's message. Well, we've seen, I mentioned Burkina Faso and these coups that have taken over. And um, we see patients every day from Burkina Faso. Now, this lady in this picture, um, Burkina Faso has a population of almost 21.5 million people. Five million of them are Christians and more than a million currently are internally displaced, which means they've been chased out of their homes to bigger towns where they can seek um, government protection. And then more than a million have also been externally displaced, we would say also outside of Burkina Faso. This lady uh, and her husband, her husband is here. Uh, this is, I need to be done, don't I? This, I'll tell you this quick story and then I, I'm done. But this lady, uh, when we were down at the cuisine, she was staying there because her husband was sick and she's like, making motions in this language I didn't understand, but it was very clear she wanted her picture taken. So I got my camera out, and I was going to take her picture, and our chaplain is just laughing. He's like, oh, she just thinks she's really beautiful and wants her picture taken. I'm like, not a problem. So I take her picture. And then she literally goes, and she pointed to her husband. And it was kind of funny to me because (laughs) she was basically saying, look how beautiful I am and what I'm married to. I didn't have the words to express to her that is the same in every culture, right? I don't know how it is. But we all marry up, lady. This wonderful couple, uh, over a period of several months, understood the gospel because that chaplain, Hama, who is still serving at our hospital, led them daily through Bible studies, initially sh- shared just the Jesus film and offered to pray with them, but they really understood the gospel. They're in their 70s. They returned to Burkina Faso. They returned to a home where they had raised good Muslim children, where they all lived together in a family home, and they were informed they had done such a good job raising their children, their children no longer welcomed Christians to live with them. And so our team came together and found a way to help move them to a small little room that they're renting. But that's really um, what faith means. In the spite of persecution, this couple understood. They could have gone home and said nothing, but they understood that despite the persecution, Jesus was worth it. And they're trying to live a life they hope and declaring the gospel to their children as well. And that's my my goal for us. Are we, we, first of all, receiving the gospel if we've received it? Are we also changed enough that we're declaring it or we're radiating the gospel out to others? Because despite persecution, Jesus is worth it. That's uh, that's what I have for you this morning. Should I close in prayer and let your team come up? Okay. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are broken. Uh, We're broken people. And we live in a broken world, and we get that, and we understand that Jesus and the story of the gospel is all that can solve our sin problem. Lord, allow us to be incredibly brave in the midst of difficult days, which may or may not already be here. Allow us also, Lord, to pray constantly for those that are striving to just live a life that honors you in countries and in areas where that is incredibly hard. And Lord, allow us all to pray First of all, show your love to others with our life, but also to declare it with our words. Give us a bravery that comes just from your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.